0: hebrews chapter ten verses twenty six to thirty one the thirty-sixth talk in a series on the book of hebrews was presented by jack crabtree on april thirtieth two thousand seventeen at reformation fellowship the copyright for this recording is held by jack crabtree and is being made available to you by gutenberg college gutenberg college is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www. Gutenberg. edu contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www wordpress dot com This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved handout number thirteen. Translation installment two thousand seventeen number one accompanies this talk.
1: I'm going to continue our study in the book of Hebrews. Uh, last week we finished the, uh, the the beginning part of the exhortation that follows the biggest and most complex and intricately argued portion of the book of Hebrews. After he completes an argument. Uh, convincing the Jews, hopefully, that it was perfectly appropriate that God would send his Messiah to die and be crucified by the Romans because that was ordained, that was purposed from the very beginning, that Jesus would be our high priest who would offer himself as the propitiatory offering that he, that he took before God to appeal to God for mercy on our behalf. And that's why he died on the cross, Is that's the role that he was playing when he died on the cross. He made a very intricate, complex argument uh, to establish that point. And then he comes to the section immediately following that as as he is wont to do in the book of Hebrews where he follows that with an exhortation. So therefore, here's what you need to do. And last week we looked at the first paragraph of that exhortation. That would be chapter 10, 19 through 25 or paragraph 53 in my translation. Um, and in that first paragraph he basically says uh, in a nutshell so look to God for mercy because you can be absolutely confident and absolutely certain that God is going to grant you mercy on the basis of Jesus' intercession his, his role as the high priest on your behalf you can count on being granted mercy so look to God for mercy and don't not do that. <laughs> that is, don't, don't forsake uh, the gift that's being given you, the grace that's being given to you by uh, Jesus being placed in that role on your behalf. And the way he puts that in this paragraph is, don't forsake getting together with other Jesus believers, uh, as is the habit of some, he said. And remember the context. The context is they are, they are experiencing increasing persecution And when you are being persecuted, you don't like to make yourself a target. So it makes sense, reasonably. I don't want to make myself a target, so I'm not going to associate with those people who are the target of persecution. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to disassociate myself from those people. And Paul says that's a mistake. Because as the persecution increases, that's the time when you especially need to associate with, with fellow Jesus believers because you need their encouragement, you need their clarity, you need, their, you need them around you to help fortify you in your belief because there's a far worse fate than being persecuted and that is being rejected by God, being subject to the wrath of God. So you need to survive, your faith needs to survive the persecution so that you can stand before God and have Jesus advocate for you and accept you into his kingdom and into eternal life. To do that, your faith needs to survive. In order for your faith to survive, you need mutual support. You need to fortify one another in your belief. So as the persecution gets greater, all the more important that you associate with and uh, be in in community or be in uh, association with fellow believers in Jesus. So that's where we left off last week. In the next paragraph in this exhortation, in the first paragraph he exhorted us what he wants us to do. In the um, second paragraph he warns us of the consequences if we don't do that. So he's warning us of the condemnation, the terrible, horrible condemnation that would be ours if we don't avail ourselves of the mercy of God and persevere in our belief and our trust in God's mercy through Jesus. So this is 1026 to 31, or paragraph 54. Let me read it. We'll look at the translation, and then I'll make some comments about it. Now, if after receiving a knowledge of the truth... We deliberately choose to act unrighteously toward it. A sacrifice for our sins no longer remains. But there is a certain terrifying anticipation of condemnation, even a fury of fire that is about to devour those who stand in opposition. Anyone who disregards the law of Moses dies without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. Of how much more severe punishment do you think he will be considered deserving the one who has stomped upon the Son of God and who has deemed insignificant the blood of the covenant on the basis of which one is sanctified and who has responded with haughty dismissiveness to the grace-imparted spirit. Now we know the one who said, Retribution is mine, I will repay. Then again, the Lord will rule over and deliver his people. To suffer punishment at the hands of the living God is frightening. Okay? Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> before I before I get into that paragraph, I did want it to comment there some notes that I had last week that I didn't talk about. I want to read those into the record here, comment on those. The last the last paragraph, you need to avail yourself of the mercy of God. Don't neglect that. Does that have any relevance to us today? Well, part of what Paul is reminding them of is the objective certainty that they can have that they're going to receive mercy um, if uh, if they look to Jesus. We need that same, on the basis of that same certainty, we need to be encouraged to approach God for mercy as well on the basis of Jesus. Granted, we don't face the situation that they're in. We don't have the problems that they have. Their problem was, but the Messiah got crucified. He can't be the Messiah, surely. Now, you and I are not likely to have that problem after 2,000-some years of knowing that the crucifixion and Jesus being the Messiah go together. Uh, We're just culturally accustomed to that, so it doesn't strike us as particularly problematic. But what does strike us as problematic, I think, is how anachronistic Jesus is. I mean, if you're anything like me, it's really difficult to visualize Jesus any other way than robes, sandals, doing first century Jewish things in a first century Jewish world. As well we should, because that's who he was. But, but the more you remove him from yourself in history, the more irrelevant he seems to us, I, I think. I, I think that's the way it feels, and that, that's the obstacle that we need to overcome. We need to be able to jump over that historical distance and realize he may be an old guy, but you can't be more relevant to my life today than Jesus. He is the eternal. He, Paul is going to end this letter by talking about the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus is the eternal solution to mankind's difficulty with death. And that, that remains vitally relevant to us no matter how remote Jesus may seem from our lives. It's hard to picture Jesus pulling out his iPhone and checking the st- stock market and dry, getting in his car and driving away and doing anything at all that's relevant to our lives, anything that resembles us and our lives. But that doesn't stop him from being uh, God's answer to our problem, the the major problem of our life. So we have to get past that. And so I think if Paul were writing it to us today, he'd he'd try to encourage us, don't be put off by that. Don't let that be an obstacle. Don't let that keep you from committing your life to the mercy and grace of God that's going to be found in this man, Jesus. Jesus. We do need to be warned, I think, not to dissociate ourselves from Jesus believers. Granted, you and I are not directly in risking physical harm. Not yet. Uh, I, I don't feel afraid of someone doing physical harm to me because I'm a Jesus believer. That's what they were faced with. I don't feel that. But nonetheless... At every time and place, Jesus has always been unpopular. And anyone who would associate with him has been unpopular. And the way that we experience it is from the contempt that people feel for us, the misunderstanding that they have for us. Uh, I mean, we, by our connection and association with Jesus, we're haters, we're old-fashioned, We're fools, we're idiots, we're stupid, we're uneducated, we're uninformed. I mean, the list goes on. There's all these charges that get brought against us for no reason except, I think, Jesus is the Messiah. So, the temptation is always going to be there to somehow distance myself from those Jesus freaks who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. I'm not one of them, right? I don't want to be, I don't want you to associate me with them. We're always tempted to to create a distance between us and the community of people who believe in Jesus. But I think the same thing that Paul said to them, we need to take that to heart for us. As the contempt grows and gets greater and may eventually uh, work its way into being in danger of physical harm, as the heat gets hotter, the more important it is that we not disassociate ourselves from other Jesus believers. Now, Paul, if you remember, there's there's several ways that we can I should say this for later maybe, but there's several ways that we can deny Jesus and reject Jesus. We can do it actively. I don't believe that anymore. The other thing we can do is sort of react uh, to do it passively, to just drift away to just, it's not that interesting to me, I don't want to involve myself with it, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to be around people who are thinking about Jesus and the truth that's in Jesus. The gospel's just not that important to me any longer. Or, and one of the ways we do that, is we drift away from the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus is proclaimed by the apostles, to a different group of Jesus believers who are more palatable to the world because they don't really take their faith all that seriously. And certainly they don't take the faith in the Jesus of the apostles that seriously. That's what gets you in trouble. And one way to protect yourself, of course, is to stay Christian, but you're not one of those kinds of Christians. You're a different kind of Christian. You're a Christian that's more palatable to the world and the heat. You, you reduce the heat. Paul experienced that in his own lifetime. If you remember in First Timothy, one of the Timothy letters, he talks about all in Asia have deserted me. Well, what, what does he mean by that? I don't think what he means by that is all these people I proclaimed the gospel to and taught and brought up in the faith have renounced the faith and are no longer Christians. I think history would suggest that's not what happened. What happened is over time, there were alternative versions of Christianity that began to develop in different communities. And they got less and less, uh, they, they, they drifted away from the faith that Paul proclaimed to different versions of the faith. Eventually, we'll look at 1 John around here, and 1 John, I think, is a great example of that happening right on the pages of the, of the New Testament where you have people who are believers in Jesus, but they're not really much believing in the Jesus that John teaches and the other apostles teach. That's why we have Christianity today, is where where did Christianity come from except from those other communities who formed alternative versions of who Jesus was and what it meant and looked like to believe in Jesus. And over time, that grew and developed into the church the Christian church. But I think Paul would warn us would have warned them at, would have warned them at the time about don't don't be drifting away from the truth as it is in Jesus for these other things. It's more acceptable. Okay. Yeah. But more acceptable to whom? It's not more acceptable to God. And the one you want to be accepted by is God, not by the world not by your culture, not by the people around you. I did comment on this but I want to, um, last week, but I want to say a few things more about this. Our translation of the first paragraph, I, I think, create a false picture of what Paul is saying here and a false picture, period. I think they're thinking that Paul's point is that Jesus has won me the right to enter into God's presence and let God know what I need the true picture is that Jesus before, goes before God as my intercessor and advocate and secures mercy for me so that God will grant me life and not death as the ultimate outcome of my existence. That's what Paul's actually saying. But the translators are, are thinking, no, he has won the, won the right for me to be able to enter into the presence of God and make my request known to God, my everyday, ordinary request. What it is that I'm struggling with today? What am I afraid of today? What am I anxious about? What do I want today? Well, let let that be made known to God. There are three basic problems, I think, with that false picture. One is that it's false. (laughs) It's just not the case. Um, the, The way it the way people tend to translate that and digest that is that it's Jesus that makes it possible for my prayers, for example, to be heard. Some of you are old enough to remember how Jerry Falwell of the moral majority decades ago got in big trouble because he said, God does not hear the prayers of Jews. Now, why did he say that? It was really kind of out of this sort of theology, this sort of picture. Why would God listen to anyone if Jesus hadn't already made way for me to have an audience with God so that I could have my prayers be heard? But, but it neglects so much in the Bible. What, is the, what does Jesus himself say? Um, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, God, in his providence, takes care of all of his creation. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, but what the, but what the Father knows it and by implication has ordained it, has willed it. Just being a creature is enough to have God's attention. In his providence, he cares for and manages and governs every aspect of creation. And that's certainly true of human beings as much as any other part of creation. So did God, he, does God hear the prayers of a rebellious creature? Well, of course. I mean, God sends rain to the unjust. It, it's fully within his right and prerogative as the creator to hear, respond to, show himself, show himself patient, show himself loving and compassionate and caring to anyone everywhere. So the idea that no only Jesus makes it possible for me to ask God for anything and have him hear me, it's just false. I mean, it's just contrary to what the the Bible actually teaches. The other problem with that picture is it reinforces a focus that we naturally have. And that natural focus is, I'm naturally preoccupied with the everyday anxieties and fears and problems and challenges of my life. And I'm not much focused on the much bigger problem of my ultimate destiny. And the younger I am, the less I have that in view. I mean, as a young person, death seems so far away and so remote that I, I, don't, need to, I, I don't need to deal with that. I don't need to come to terms with that. I don't even need to think through the implications of that because that, that's really so far off. And so we take that very natural ostrich-like stance of sticking my head in the sand and just not thinking about it and not considering it. Well, every human being has a natural tendency to ignore the biggest problem of their existence, and that is the fact that their existence could end. And we're, we're prone to ignore that problem. But that is the preoccupation of the Bible. Of, an, of The good news of the gospel is how that problem gets addressed by Jesus. And that's what it's interested in telling us. So if we really know how to believe the gospel, we're going to see the gospel as the answer to that problem, not necessarily the other problems. But I, I've been in conversations with people who say, believe in Jesus and you can get eternal life? Well, whoop de doo what's the big deal about that? What I want is... I want him to heal me now. I want him to feed me now. I want him to help me in my you know, help me have peace now and tranquility now. you know I'm, I want him to help me cope and flourish and prosper in my existence right now i mean that 's the big deal that 's what I really want eternal life that 's pretty long or something I mean we we just have this incredible ability to trivialize what is of infinite importance and to, and to exaggerate what Paul calls momentary light afflictions. that are, Those are the trivial things. The momentary light afflictions are trivial. What's a big deal is, is your life going to go on or are you going to be absolutely nullified and erased and your existence is nothing, brought to nothing? That's the big deal. And that's what the gospel and Jesus addresses. That's what Hebrews has been talking about. So to the extent that that false picture reinforces that false perspective and that false focus and emphasis, that's destructive because we have to change the focus and and the emphasis. And then finally and closely related to that is that false picture fosters false expectations. We expect, well, now that I am a believer my everyday anxieties, fears, and problems will be solved by Jesus. He surely won't. He might leave other people out there dangling and, and still in fear and still in grief and still experiencing tragedy, but not, not me. Because Jesus has, has led me into the throne room of God and give me an, an audience, and all I have to do is say, God, I need help, and he'll be there and give me the help that I want on my terms, in my way. Well, all of us know from experience that that ain't true. God does not answer my prayers the way in my way, in my time, uh, according to my desires. Uh, He has a marvelous way of blessing me. He has a marvelous way of doing good by me and being my benefactor. But interestingly, um, it's it's on his terms and it's his good not necessarily my good. So, to the extent that that false picture reinforces the other expectations, it's, it's wrong and, and ultimately destructive. Okay, now we get to the next paragraph. I read it. Um, let, me, let me draw your attention to some changes in my translation that I think are noteworthy and you need to keep in mind here. In the New American Standard... verse 26 reads for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins I think the translators have misunderstood Paul's point here when they translate it that way at least the way that reads to me I, I, I can't guarantee what they intended but the way that reads to me and I think most of us read it this way is that now that I've become a Christian and I believe in Jesus, if I were to ever deliberately and willfully choose to follow my depravity and my immorality and do something immoral and depraved, then all bets off. There is no forgiveness. There is no sacrifice. No longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That, I'm very confident that that's not what Paul is saying here the kind of unrighteousness that he's talking about is not the unrighteousness of manifesting my depravity as a depraved human creature. It's acting unrighteously in response to the truth of the gospel that's been proclaimed to me. I I dare not respond unrighteously to that. Um, That's the whole issue of the letter. I mean, this work got written because... They had responded and had believed and now the heat is on, the persecution is coming and they're going, ah, I don't, I'm not that interested in believing and they are drifting away. Well, that's what Paul is concerned about and that's what he's calling, the way I translated it, is we deliberately choose to act unrighteously. Well, what is the act of unrighteousness? Drifting away from the truth, not taking the truth seriously not seeing the value in the truth enough to embrace it and to pursue it and to commit to it and to follow it. That's to be unrighteous in relationship to the truth and the gospel. So I I try to capture that in my translation. Less significant, a little bit later, he talks about regarding as unclean. This is in verse 29 in the New American Standard. uh, And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. The word for unclean there is koinos, which in certain context uh, does refer to unclean as opposed to clean in the Jewish context, but it more commonly than unclean means simply common and ordinary. The Greek language that the New Testament is written in is called koine Greek. That is, it's the street Greek, the ordinary Greek, the common Greek of the eastern part of the empire. Uh, for us to regard the blood of the covenant as koinos is to basically deem it as ordinary and um, common, which is to say insignificant. So I, I I translate it, who is deemed insignificant, the blood of the covenant. Then a little later in that same verse 29, he talks about, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. That that's okay. Um, I responded. I, I, I uh, translated. It, responded with haughty dismissiveness. That is, it's not what we say to or about the spirit of God. It's how we react and respond to what the spirit of God is doing. That I think is in view here. Um. What, what's the role of the Spirit of God? Well, the, role that the Spirit of God, as we see it in the Upper Room Discourse, when Jesus was promising the coming of the Spirit, what does he call him? The Spirit of Truth. He's going to equip the apostles to understand the truth in order that they might be equipped to be spokes, spokesmen for Jesus, go out to the world and tell the world what it is that Jesus taught us, And they are authoritative spokesmen who can tell the world and clarify to the world and spell out the implications of what it is that Jesus taught. Why? Because the spirit of truth is at work in them. Who brought to their remembrance all that Jesus said and did and led them into all truth. Because the spirit of truth was at work in them, they are equipped in their knowledge of the truth to lead us into truth. And then the the other thing the Spirit of Truth is going to do is convict the world of something—sin, <laughs> uh, righteousness, and judgment. It's too complicated to get into that, but but let me just say this: Jesus promised the apostles, "Greater works that you will you do than I did, because I go to the Father." Well, what what does he mean by that? You know, what are the greater works that they did? The greater works, they didn't do miracles greater than Jesus. Jesus' miracles were about as great as you can get, especially the resurrection thing was pretty impressive. So Jesus' miracles were very impressive. Apostles replicated some of those miracles, that's true. But the only thing they did greater is they proclaimed the truth and people heard. People heard it, they responded to it, they received it, they believed it, they obeyed it. Jesus proclaimed the truth and made him matter and matter and matter until they crucified him. But the apostles changed the world by proclaiming that same message that Jesus had brought into the world. And bit by bit, eyes were opened, ears were opened, people believed, communities were formed, and you got momentum, and that momentum over time changed Western civilization. Why could they do greater works than Jesus did? It's not because they understood the truth any better than Jesus did. It's not because they articulated it any more effectively than Jesus did. But they weren't speaking to spiritual dunderheads. Or he was, they weren't, yeah. Jesus was. The, the audience of Jesus, the spirit of truth, had not worked in them to make them receptive and open. He had not given them eyes to see and ears to hear. He was beginning to give people eyes to see and ears to hear as the apostles went into the world and proclaimed that same message. So the response they got was greater and better than anything that Jesus got. Well, all that's to say and to reinforce, what is this gift of the Spirit that was sent into the world? It was the activity of God Working on the insides of people, in the hearts of people, to make their hearts receptive, to give them minds that were able to eyes that were able to see, ears that were able to hear, minds that were able to comprehend what this truth is that uh, is all about Jesus. Well, everybody is having that work done in them. Uh, no, that's not true. Everybody is having the, the Spirit of God go far enough in their life to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Uh, even the people who don't respond have had the Spirit of God at work in them up to a point that they know what they're rejecting when they reject it. At some level, they understand what they're doing. They're, they're telling God to go to hell. They're, they're saying to God, I'm not interested. I, I want to live my own life, my own way, do my own thing. This is just a huge interference. I'm not interested. And what is it you're rejecting? You're rejecting that God stuff. You're rejecting this stuff about sin and righteousness and uh, mercy from God and judgment and all that kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm not interested. They're not ignorant of what they're rejecting. They know what they're rejecting. So that's what he's getting at when he says to insult the spirit, uh, the spirit of grace. The spirit of, by the spirit of grace, he just means the spirit who is a gift from God to us. It's God's grace to us that we have the spirit at work in us. To insult him is in effect to say to the spirit of God, yeah, to the spirit of truth, you're a liar, or to say to the spirit of truth, you, you have nothing to offer me. You have nothing of value for me. You have nothing of significance for me. That's to insult him, or as I put it, to respond with haughty dismissiveness to what it is that the spirit of truth is proclaiming and, and teaching us. Okay, then finally in this paragraph, one, one other change. I, I had looked at this for years and just I assumed I knew what it meant um, until I went back to Deuteronomy to see the passage that he was quoting. Uh, The New American Standard has, this is in verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's a quotation out of Deuteronomy, uh, verse 35 of chapter 32. And then the very next verse in Deuteronomy. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Well, because of the way the English judge uh, sounds to me, I thought he was saying the same thing. Vengeance is mine. I will judge, that is, condemn. The Lord will condemn his, his people. So that he's warning those of us who make ourselves enemies of God by not responding in belief that he's warning us, God is going to take vengeance against those people who have put themselves in opposition to God. He's going to judge them. He's going to condemn them. Uh, but I went back and looked at that Deuteronomy passage, and as best I can tell, uh, we might have time to look at it a little bit later, but as best I can tell, that Deuteronomy passage is talking about, ultimately, I think, the end of history. Uh, it, it, it doesn't really matter to Paul's point whether that's right or not, but I think he's talking about the end of history. In any case, he's talking about, the, the whole passage is about... Um, God's saying, I'm going to bring the Gentiles against you to discipline you, to chastise you. And I'm going to use the Gentile nations to come against you, my people, to give you a rough time as a way of disciplining you and chastising you. But, and in fact, I would use the Gentiles to wipe you out completely, but that's not going to work because those stupid Gentiles, they would think that they did it, not me those Gentiles would think that they prevailed against you because of their own strength and merits and their gods. They wouldn't, they wouldn't realize that it's me, your God, who's using them in judgment against you. They, they, they don't understand that. So I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And then he goes on to talk more about how stupid the Gentiles are. And, and then basically he gets around to saying, in the end, I will take vengeance against the Gentile nations for coming up against you, my people. So it's in that context where he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's vengeance against the Gentile nations, the very Gentile nations that he's going to use to discipline his people. He's going to take vengeance against them for their godlessness, for their rejection of God, and for their hatred of God's people. I'm making some of that stuff up, but that's the gist of it. But then he says, the Lord will judge his people. Now, the word judge is ambiguous. The word judge is used to mean condemnation. That's true. But it's also used to mean to rule, to lead, and to kind of reign over as a, as a king-like figure, although you're not a king, that, that's to judge. We get the book of Judges because there were a group of people that God called forth to lead his people, to rescue them from their enemies, to deliver them, uh, to adjudicate in, over their disputes and basically to, to function like a king and a governmental leader, even though they weren't a king, per se. They were judges. Well, that word gets, gets connected with this Greek word, um, and uh, there are times in the New Testament, not infrequently, where the word this word judge means to rule or reign as a savior and redeemer and vindicator. That's the sense in which he means it in Deuteronomy, when he says the Lord Yahweh will judge his people. He's saying the Lord is going to step in. He's going to deliver them. He's going to save them. He's going to rule over them and govern over them. And that's why I think at this point he's talking about the end of time because I think he's talking about that transition point in history when the Gentiles have once again come against God's people to destroy them. What is God, what is God going to do? He's going to take vengeance toward them, and he's going to redeem, rescue, and save his people and then rule over them. He's going to judge his people. Okay, so I, I tried to, uh, in my translation, tried to capture that. Then again, the Lord will rule over and deliver his people. Okay, let's back up now and see what he's saying. So we've already talked about, now if after receiving a knowledge of the truth we deliberately choose to act unrighteously toward it, a sacrifice for sins no longer remains. Now, I think this is the context in which in my notes I was going to talk about Paul and people drifting away from his teaching. To deliberately choose to act unrighteously is not necessarily to overtly say no to it. It can simply mean to drift away from believing it, being committed to it, and owning it in the way that it deserves. Like, like I said earlier, there is no important truth in all of human existence than the way in which Jesus saves us from the most important problem of our existence, which is death and condemnation and the wrath of God. There's no important truth. So for me to be casual and cavalier about that and just not get around to deciding about it, I've already dealt unrighteously with it. If it's just not convenient for me to decide whether I believe it, I've, I've already dismissed it. I've already not grasped how important and how valuable this is. So what, he, what he's saying is, if we deal unrighteously with this truth about Jesus, a sacrifice for sins no longer remains, he says. Now, what does he mean by that? Obviously, a sacrifice for sins is eternal. I mean, it, of course it remains, but it doesn't remain as relevant to me and of, as benefit to me. I think that's the point that he's making. I no longer am going to benefit from the propitiatory offering that was offered up on my behalf if I just don't get around to deciding whether I believe it or not or if I overtly reject it, or if I trade it in for a better model and update it for a different version of the gospel that's preferable to me. If I in any way deal unrighteously with the truth, then his sacrifice for me is irrelevant, of no benefit, no longer of any significance to me. Rather, instead of having a propitiatory offering secure mercy for me, he says, but there is a certain terrifying anticipation of condemnation, even a fury of fire that is about to devour those who stand in opposition. Okay, if we go... He's doing a pretty interesting thing. Isaiah 26, 11 has two sentences in parallel with each other. And I, I don't, I'm not going to take the time to actually take us to Isaiah, but it has two sentences in parallel. The first one talks about... Um, God's fury toward his adversaries, and then a fire that consumes those who are in opposition, or a fury toward toward the untutored. It's actually difficult to reconstruct the text because the Greek translation and the Hebrew Masoretic text are not exactly the same. I can't even tell if they're based on the same text. So I don't know exactly what he's saying, but it's, it's clear that he's putting in parallel God's fury toward his enemies and God being a fire that consumes his enemies. And they're just put in parallel to each other. So, what Paul does, he just collapses the two in parallel and puts them into one phrase. It's a, a fury of fire, a fury, the fury of God toward his enemies that's going to act like fire, that will uh, devour those who stand in opposition to him. Now, um, I don't know exactly what Isaiah 26 is talking about. It sure looks to me, again, like it's talking about the final days of history. It, it, it looks like it's focused on that event. And once again, it's focusing on how when the, day, when the time comes, and the nations are come up against his people to destroy them, how is God ultimately going to respond to that? He's going to respond with a fury of wrath toward those Gentiles, and he's going to consume them like a fire. That's what he's going to do. Now, for Paul's purposes here in Hebrews, I don't think we need to know what event it is that he's predict- Isaiah 26 is predicting. I think it's the end of time, But maybe not. Maybe there's some other event in in Israel's history that uh, Isaiah had in mind and and was describing there. But it doesn't matter because Paul is doing an interesting thing here. He's not arguing from the predicted event. The predicted event is not even relevant to his purposes here. Rather, he's deriving and extracting a principle out of the prophecy of a predicted event. And what is the principle? God can get really mighty mad at his enemies, at those people who oppose him and put themselves in opposition and take their stand in opposition to God and what he's doing in the world. As a matter of principle, how does God react to that? With fury, with wrath. He's outraged by it. And it's an outrage that ultimately will manifest itself in destruction of those people who make themselves his enemies. So, I mean, whatever Isaiah 26 is talking about, it's not predicting the Jews departing from Jesus in Paul's day. <laughs> it's not that, whatever, whatever it is, that's not it. So he's not saying Isaiah told us what you guys were going to do and, and Isaiah predicts what God's going to do to you. No. He's predicting something Isaiah's predicting something else, but the principle that is embodied in the fulfillment of that prediction is a principle that you my readers need to pay attention to here. God does not cotton people rejecting him. As he said over and over again in the Old Testament, God is a to Israel, God is a jealous God. He's going to protect his um, claim on your lives. And if you don't grant him, what it, you know, if you don't give him the right to put that claim on your life, then you're toast. Well, that's, what he's, that's what he's saying here. So these are people who've put themselves in opposition to God. Why? Because they've rejected the truth about his Messiah. They've rejected his Messiah. They won't value his Messiah with the value and significance that is his due. Now he makes an interesting argument an argument from the lesser to the greater. Anyone who disregards the law of Moses dies without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. Of how much more severe punishment do you think he will be considered deserving? The one who's stomped upon the Son of God has deemed insignificant the blood of his covenant on the basis of which one is sanctified and who has responded with haughty dismissiveness to the grace imparted spirit. So when he talks about dying, uh, the one who disregards the law of Moses dies without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. What is he talking about there? I think he probably has this passage in mind out of Deuteronomy. It's in chapter 17, 2 through 7. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which Yahweh your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host which i have commanded what which i have not commanded and if i if it is told you and you have heard of it then you shall inquire thoroughly behold if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay, so when he talks about transgressing the covenant here, and when Paul, or when Paul talks about anyone who disregards the law of Moses, he's not talking about being a morally weak and depraved people who did something ungodly and unrighteous and sinful that violates the covenant and you are in need of forgiveness. You don't get stoned to death for that. You take an offering to the temple seeking mercy from God by way of the propitiatory offering that you offer up. You don't get stoned to death for that. The disregarding the law of Moses or the transgressing the covenant that he's talking about is rejecting the God who gave you that covenant, right? Because what does he describe him doing? Serving other gods and worshiping them, the sun or the moon or any of the other heavenly host. That is, you, you've actually rejected the God of the covenant completely, and you've rejected his covenant because you've rejected him as your God. That's what he means by transgressing the covenant. Well, that's pretty serious. And the Deuteronomy passage makes it pretty clear that God expects Israel to take that Pretty seriousness. It's an evil that needs to be purged out of Israel. It will not be tolerated. So, as Paul puts it, without mercy you must put them to death. Because the one thing that cannot be tolerated in this people that God is creating and the covenant that he's making with his people is disregarding the God and his covenant altogether cannot be tolerated. Immorality can be dealt with. Moral weakness, of course we're going to be morally weak. All that stuff can be dealt with, but what needs to be purged out completely is a complete rejection of God, of Israel, and the covenant that he made with them. Okay, well, notice what Paul's saying. If God says that person who disregards God and his covenant in Israel in the time of Moses is to die without mercy you think God's going to tolerate rejecting his Messiah? That's an even worse offense in the mind of Paul than what Deuteronomy was describing, where you were an idolater worshiping other gods, uh, forsaking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and forsaking his covenant completely. As bad as that is, rejecting the Messiah is even worse. So if the first one dies without mercy, you think God's going to say, Ah oh, well, yeah, whatever. They don't believe in Jesus, too bad. No, of course, you will die without mercy just as surely for rejecting his Messiah as anyone ever would have for rejecting the covenant and the God of the covenant. How much more severe punishment do you think he will be considered deserving? You know, it says how much greater judgment, but it's not a question of is there such a thing as greater judgment I think this is a this is a rhetorical argument. How much greater do you think one, how much greater punishment do you think someone deserves, who has rejected the Son? Of how much more severe punishment do you think he will be considered deserving, the one who has stomped upon the Son of God? Notice, I mean, it's very very graphic, violent language. Um, we don't think of it, look, I'm, I'm not stomping on the Son of God, I just don't believe him. <laughs> I'm not stomping on the Son of God, I just, I just don't think he's the Messiah. I, I think he was a cynic philosopher who dressed funny and took a nap stack and a staff around and played philosopher. But I don't reject him. I'm not stomping on him. From Paul's perspective, no, that's exactly stomping on him. Uh, for me to rationalize and sort of casually dismiss the most important creature in all of God's creation and just kind of blow him off, might as well be stomping on him. So that's why the graphic language—the one who has stomped upon the Son of God and who has deemed insignificant the blood of the covenant, on the basis of which one is sanctified—that is, I don't, I don't need Jesus to get me mercy. That's how you're you're deeming his blood insignificant. It's on that basis that we are sanctified. What does he mean by sanctified? It's on the basis of Jesus' intercession and advocacy that I get set apart to become a sanctified one, a saint, a hagios, a holy one. How do I become such a one? One who's going to go, go on into eternity forever and ever in the eternal kingdom of God, in the new heavens and the new earth, instead of being destroyed with the rest of humanity? How do I get set apart to that unique goal? By the advocacy and intercession of Jesus. It's on the basis of his blood that I am sanctified to that status and that role and that place. And who has responded with haughty dismissiveness to the grace-imparted spirit, I think I've already explained that the spirit of god the spirit of truth is pointing the finger at jesus and saying believe in him he is the messiah and i go yeah maybe not at least if he is i'll get around to it someday but not interesting to me now we know the one who said retribution is mine i will repay then again the lord will rule over and deliver his people to suffer punishment at the hands of the living God is frightening. So that's the whole point of this paragraph. If I don't avail myself of the mercy that is to be found in Jesus, as he's encouraging me to do in the first paragraph, he warns me in this paragraph, the alternative, if you reject it, is you are, you are going to be punished, suffer punishment at the hands of the living God. And that's, that's not a good thing. You don't want that. Now, one last comment, and then I'll open it up to your questions or comments. Uh, Why It's interesting that he quotes both of those passages out of Deuteronomy because he only needs the first one. Retribution is mine. I will repay. Because that's what the whole paragraph is about. Why does he then turn around and say, then again, the Lord will rule over and deliver his people? Well, because remember the historical context. And who, who is it that he's writing to? He's writing to people who are in danger of making themselves enemies of God and opponents of God precisely because they have grown weary of being beat up on by Gentiles. I don't mean literally Gentiles, non-believers by, by enemies of God. The enemies of God are making life difficult for them. So I think Paul just can't resist adding in that Deuteronomy passage, when we get to the end, when history reaches its denouement, and all things are resolved, all the themes are resolved, everything comes full circle and gets all tied up together, and it all makes sense. What's going to happen? Not The enemies of God are going to be punished and the people of God are going to be uh, rescued, delivered, and rewarded with a blessing. So is it worth letting yourself experience being beat up here and now uh, at the hands of these people? Well, eventually the promise is that God will rule over his people. He will deliver them. He will save them. He will rescue them. So, yeah, you just need to hang in there. Things are not peachy keen right now, but this isn't the end. And there are higher stakes than anything that you're facing right now. You, you just simply need to, you, when, when everything gets settled, you want to make sure you're on the right, right side then, the right side of God at that point. Because if you're on the right side of God at that point, you're going to be rescued. You're going to be delivered. You're going to be set free. Long paragraph. Sorry, it took me longer than your questions or comments.
2: Hey, Jack. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase what I think this paragraph is about, uh, kind of summarize it, and you tell me whether I'm correct or not. Okay. So it looks like there's some Jews that are living comfortably in their Jewish community, following the law, relating to God that way. And then they realize Jesus is the Messiah, and they start living like that. And they come under persecution, and at first they hold fast, and they get their property taken away and all kinds of stuff.
1: Not fair. That's the next paragraph.
2: Okay. <laughs> and um, eventually it gets pretty hard, and they're like, okay, uh, well, it would be a lot easier if we could just relate to God via the law like we used to. And not have to deal with this Jesus thing because including this Jesus thing is making it really uncomfortable for us. I think it's the other Jews. I think it's other Jews that don't believe in Jesus that are persecuting them, not Gentiles. Right. Um, And so, you know, gradually they kind of want to distance themselves from the other, you know, staunch Christians uh, and pretend like they can relate to God via the law and not through Jesus anymore and just, you know, go back to the way that it's always been and comfortably. And that would be treating, you know, the, the truth of twenty six that they're sinning against or rejecting and treating it as though it's not true that Jesus is not the Christ and treating his sacrifice as though it was nothing as irrelevant, not changing the way they relate to God. And so he's saying, Hey remember guys, there's two things God's gonna he's gonna burn the unrighteous, and he's going to take care of his people. I think that's what the paragraph's about.
1: Yeah, yeah, well said. The, the, thing, the thing that I would stress here is it's not likely. I mean, all the indications are you don't have people standing up, uh, you know, starting blogs, denouncing Jesus and Christians and you know, railing against uh, the gospel and the apostles. It's probably not at all that overt in their weariness in their weariness they just stop working at it they just stop pursuing it and that's what is so shocking about what he's saying i mean when you use it the graphic language stop on the son of on the son of man is it son of god stop on the son of god to use that kind of language about something that i think if we had a video camera and we're watching these people i think what we would see uh, are just people that stopped actively pursuing mercy through Jesus from God and just because that's what gets you in trouble so let me just shut up and fly under the radar and not uh, not be seen not be noticed because I'm not doing anything that marks me as someone who seriously thinks Jesus is the only answer to my eternal existence
2: yeah, it looks like it looks like um the way it looks to me is that that Jesus becomes a really uncomfortable truth at this point right. you know, it's just they're just like you know we were doing fine before Jesus came along. All of my cousins didn 't reject me you right. know I just we we all followed the law and we, we all got along. you know we had the Gentiles to worry about but uh but amongst the Jews, we were fine, and then Jesus comes along and they 're like we have to we have to acknowledge that this is the Messiah, and now my cousins are rejecting me um And he'd be a lot more comfortable if Jesus just hadn't come along, so we'll just, you know, kind of bypass that.
1: Right. No, exactly right. That's how I see it. Okay. Is that it? All right. We'll probably finish this exhortation next week.